Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and I've had a wonderful time so far, this Missional Emphasis Sunday. Uh, thank you to Jeff for organizing this and for asking me to bring the word. Uh, greatly looking forward to our text uh, this morning. Um, just to echo uh, Sunday School, uh, Steve and Katie, it's just been uh, marvelous working with them and God's providence, and uh, really excited for, uh, for his work going forward. One thing I, I greatly enjoy uh, doing is uh, re- reading or listening to missionary biographies. I would assume many in this room uh, probably enjoy uh, the same thing. There's something greatly motivating, uh, convicting that happens when we read and, and learn about these great men, men and women of the faith. story of Hudson Taylor, for example, the great missionary to China, obviously has a large place in, in my heart. I named my son Hudson after him. His communion with Christ that sustained him through so many difficult times along with his great love for the Chinese people. That's what makes his story so inspiring to me. I want to be like him. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, is another one on my list of favorite missionary biographies. Such a life of hardship and suffering, endurance in the midst of a spiritually dark place, almost eight years without any signs of fruit, makes it pretty hard to complain after reading that story. And the list could go on to include many, many others. But what is common to them all is that they were all men with convictions. They believed a few very important things, and those things drove them. They caused them to persevere. It shaped and directed all that they did as missionaries. So this morning, my desire is simply that we would continue to develop firm convictions. Convictions about gospel ministry in general, and then convictions about missions in particular. And I don't plan on saying anything that you probably have not heard before, but my aim is that we would be reminded about the biblical nature of missions. Just what is missions? And how does that relate to the local church? And how does this relate to each one of you, faithful church members here in Lynchburg, Virginia? There's not a little bit of confusion swirling around this topic today, so my desire is that the biblical nature of missions will be clarified, will be reminded. My aim is also that each one of you will come away being motivated to pour your life out all the more for this local church. And then from that, the Lord would then raise up some who have been faithfully devoted to the church here and send them out to the nations. So those are my aims this morning. But in order for these aims to be accomplished, we need to have some biblical convictions. We need to have truths of God's Word take deep root in our hearts. So what are these convictions? That should drive us, that should shape the way we think about ministry, whether here or abroad. To answer that question, I want to consider the life of the greatest of all missionaries, the Apostle Paul. How would Paul explain what drove him as a missionary? How would he explain what shaped and directed all that he did as a missionary? Well, we don't have to guess because Paul actually gives us this answer. This morning, I'd like to share with you a passage in which Paul gives us his personal mission statement. 
In here, he describes his basic convictions that motivate and shape all of his work. And I think it's one of the clearest and most concise summaries in the Bible of just what biblical missions ought to look like and the biblical motivations behind missions and gospel ministry in general. So that being said, I would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, if you have not done so already. Pastor Farrell has been teaching us so faithfully through this incredible book um, of Romans, and all I want to do this morning is simply piggyback on something that he has already taught us in chapter 1 of Romans, and then try to apply it to missions. This morning we are only going to be looking at a single verse, chapter 1, verse 5, and I want to unpack it for you because I believe that here we get the basic ingredients which were the backbone of Paul's ministry. It's what drove him. It's what directed all that he did. So let's read. We're going to start in verse 1, read through verse 5, and here we're going to get four ingredients of faithful gospel ministry. So begin in verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God and power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." In verse 5, we get four essential ingredients in faithful gospel ministry. The first ingredient in faithful gospel ministry is the motivation behind gospel ministry, which is grace. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So in verses 1 to 4, Paul has just explained that the entire goal of his ministry is Christ. He proclaims the gospel that is concerning Christ. Christ is the goal of Paul's ministry. But now in verse 5, he shifts to saying that Christ is also the very source of his ministry. He says, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, what does that mean? We've received grace and apostleship. Paul's speaking mainly about himself here, but I don't think he's saying that I received grace over here, that's one thing, and then I received apostleship over here, and that's quite a different thing. These two go together. Paul is saying that his apostleship was a gift of grace. You see, Paul recognized that not only was his salvation purely of grace, but so also was his calling to be an apostle. Back in verse 1, Paul tells us that he was called to be an apostle. Calling almost always has to do with an effectual work of God. It's often used of salvation, but it can also be used of a call to ministry. God did not invite Paul to be an apostle. He didn't encourage him to be an apostle. He didn't merely commission him to be an apostle, although that was included. He called him. He decisively made him an apostle by the word of Christ on the Damascus road. And here Paul says, that that was rooted in sheer grace. Paul never got over the grace of God to him, not only in salvation, as astonishing as that was, but also in his appointment to service as an apostle 
of Christ. Look with me at another passage here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You hear that? The reason Paul is an apostle, anything he has is owing to grace. While the aim of Paul's life and of his ministry as an apostle, it was an unspeakable gift of grace. So it drove Paul to carry out his mission zealously and faithfully. But what does that have to do with us? No one in here has the gift of apostleship. How does this apply to, to you and me? focus of this verse is, is clearly on Paul. But later in this letter, Paul will actually tell us that all believers have also been graced by Christ. Not only in salvation, as amazing as that is, but also in equipping for service. So that we can, to some extent, and in some aspects, participate with Paul in the same mission that he had been given. So turn with me over to Romans chapter 12 really quickly. Romans chapter 12, and look at verse 6. Romans 12, verse 6, Paul says, Having gifts, listen to all this gift in grace language, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Paul says, if you are a believer, you have been graced. Not only with salvation, but also with gifts for ministry. Not just with justification, not only with no condemnation. You've been graced with grace gifts. Equipment for service to the risen Christ. And a continual realization of the abundance of grace that we have received should be one of the primary motivations for you and I in ministry, whether you're a pastor or a missionary or a faithful church member. But when we get this fundamental motivation wrong, we will very quickly distort ministry. We'll make it about myself in some way. I'll drift from doing Christ's work in Christ's way. But as long as you remember that you are but an unworthy slave, who's been so graced to be a slave of the risen Christ, then your only desire will be to serve the Lord in whatever way He has given you. We've been graced. So before we move on, let me give you a couple of implications here for for our, our lives. What will it look like in our lives practically when this truth has, has taken hold? Well, number one, a realization of the grace we've received will remove from us any boasting. Whatever service to Christ that I possess, whatever spiritual ability or, or calling that I have, it is the result of lavish grace. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, He's modeling exactly what he's about to command. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly 
than he ought to think. In other words, all believers have been given gifts for the service of body, of the body. These gifts have been given by grace, not because we earned them, not for our self-exaltation, but when we start to boast in our accomplishments, or we start to think that I deserve some more influence or some more recognition, or when I start to crave applause for my ministry, I've forgotten this truth, that any ability or gifting I have to serve Christ is purely of His grace. It removes boasting. Number two, it will also guard us from envying others. One of the first indicators that reveals that I've forgotten Christ's grace to me in the form of equipping me for service is that I will begin to compare myself with others. I'll begin to covet their usefulness. I begin to covet their influence and their giftings. And when I do that, I'm subtly saying that I deserve more. I've forgotten grace. It's even worse than that, actually. Because so long as my focus is on what I don't have and wishing that I had X, Y, and Z that that brother has, I will be neglecting the grace that God has given to me. I'll spend all my time wishing I had other gifts and abilities all the while wasting grace that has been given me. But brothers and sisters, we've received grace. Let that move you to stop comparing yourself to others. It's a constant battle in my life, and I'm sure it is in yours. Instead, allow the astonishing reality that Christ has graced you in any way drive you to pour your life out for him, however he's equipped you. We've received grace. Number three, the realization of the grace we've received will help us see that after all of our service, we are even more indebted to Christ. In other words, we never pay God back in our ministry. The more labor that you do and service that you render, maybe teaching Sunday school class or visiting the, the sick and the, and the widows, cleaning the church, discipling a younger brother or sister, giving generously to the church or to the needy, the more you do those things, you are actually in greater debt to God because of it. Because it was God's grace that stood behind all of that from the beginning. Look at how Paul says it over in 1 Corinthians 15 again. For the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. After all of Paul's labors, sufferings, toilsome gospel work, he says God's grace stood behind it all. It should transform the way we think about ministry and work and labor. We don't indebt God. I'm only all the more indebted to God because it's all from his grace. Number four. The realization of the grace we've received will remind us that we are obligated to serve. Because Paul received the grace of apostleship, it obligated him to arrange his life accordingly. So go back to chapter 1 and drop your eyes down to verse 14. 
Paul said in verse 5, I've received grace and apostleship, and now verse 14, I am under obligation. Your translation might say I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians. Yes, his apostleship was grace, but that grace brought an obligation. The same is true for us. Service is not optional. It brings, grace brings, an obligation. Back in chapter 12, verse 6, Paul said, Having great gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So those are four implications that, that come out of this first point. The motivation behind gospel ministry is grace. Faithful gospel ministry must begin and end, be motivated by grace in the form of salvation and in the form of equipping for service. But if we neglect this, this starting point, then everything else we'd attempt to do in missions or in the church will be off. It'll be wrongly motivated. It'll be about me in some, in some way. So how has Christ graced you specifically? You tempted to boast in it? As though it were owing to you in some way? You tempted to envy the giftings of, of others? Are you tempted to think that you can indebt God by, by your service? You tempted to be lazy and neglect what you have been given? The answer is to go back to this first element we have received grace. Well, that brings us now to the second ingredient here. Faithful gospel ministry is the aim of gospel ministry, which is the obedience of faith. Why did Paul receive the grace of apostleship? Why have you and I received grace in the form of equipping for, for service? We'll look back at verse 5 through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul received grace of apostleship unto the obedience of faith. Now what does that mean? There's two options. The first is simply, he means, receive grace and apostleship unto obedience, namely faith. His goal as an apostle was that people would believe in the gospel. That's certainly true, and that's part of what he's saying, but I don't think that's all of what he means here. I think he means something more, something like, like this. The obedience which comes from faith. We use expressions like this in English all the time. We say the heat of the sun, right? What does that mean? It means the heat that comes from the sun, I think that's what he means here. The goal of his ministry was not just conversions. It was lives of obedience to Christ that flows from faith in the gospel. That is what Paul was after. It was not only that people would believe in the gospel, but that people would be made obedient to Christ through their faith in the gospel. Simply put, his goal was Christian maturity. Now let me give you three quick reasons why I think that is the meaning of what Paul is saying here. First, it's because Paul models this very thing in the verses that, that follow. Just, just drop your eyes down to the following verses, verses 9 to 10. He tells these Roman Christians how eager he is to see them. He's longed to come for them for a long time. But why? Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 13, 
changes the metaphor. I want you to know that I've often intended to come to you. I've thus been prevented in order to reap some harvest, some fruit among you, as well as among the rest of the, the Gentiles. Paul's desire was to come to them, believers who already believed in the gospel, to build them up in their faith that they would be more fruitful. That's because his aim was the obedience of of faith. Number two, I think obedience of faith refers to a life of obedience which flows from faith in the gospel because that's the essence of Paul's theology in Romans. Even a brief look through through this book will show us that Paul deeply believed that true faith in the gospel must send ripple effects out into every dimension of your life. Romans 6, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he, we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 8. The goal is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's gospel and mission aimed at the growth and maturity of believers. Another reason. Because this is how Paul describes his mission in, in other books. Let me show you one passage here, Colossians 1, 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal of Paul's ministry was not just amassing converts, but the maturing of these believers so that they would be presented to Christ on the last day mature, holy, without spot. That's what drove Paul. It was the aim of his ministry. But how did he do that? How did he go about accomplishing that, that mission? And the answer is it was not haphazard. He did not just drop in a place, get a bunch of converts, and just wish them the, the best. What did he do? He established local churches led by godly elders, nourished by the teaching of sound doctrine. Flip over with me to chapter 15, if you, if you will, of Romans, how Paul explains this mission of his and how it was practically fulfilled. Chapter 18, and, and look at verse, chapter 15, verse 18. How did Paul go about accomplishing his aim of the obedience of faith? Chapter 15, verse 18, he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, look at this, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. See the connection back to our passage. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now that is an absolutely astonishing thing for Paul to say. Paul had obviously not preached the gospel to every single individual in this entire region. So how in the world could Paul say that he has fulfilled his ministry? Later in verse 23, he says, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Well, why not, Paul? The answer is because Paul fulfilled his commission through the establishment of local churches. 
He fulfilled his ministry because in this entire region, he won converts and established churches with godly leadership, which would be able to lead these believers on to full Christian maturity. And then as these churches are growing, they become gospel wells, if you will, dotted all around the Roman Empire. And as they're growing and maturing, sending out people coming to Christ, and the work continues to grow. That was Paul's strategy. Paul sought to bring about the obedience of faith through the establishment of local churches. So this has some very important implications, um, again, for the way we think about ministry and the end goal of of those gifts we talked about in in the first point. So let me give you two of them. Number one, the church is the God-ordained means whereby his people will be grown to full maturity. God has ordained that a life of obedience, which comes from true faith in the gospel, come through the church. It's through the church that the ordinances are observed. It's through the church that the scriptures are taught. The elders oversee. Church discipline happens. The gifts of the Spirit exercised. All in this thing that God has designed. It's the primary way people are brought to full Christian maturity. And without it, Christian maturity will not happen as it ought. And this point is essential to get right when it comes to missions. How much that goes on today in the name of missions falls so short of this. I don't doubt that things are done with the sincerest of motives or, or a good heart, but missions that does not have the making and maturing of disciples in the context of a local church as its primary aim is not biblical missions. Social work, relief of the poor, caring for felt needs, good things, noble things, but by themselves they're not missions. And the danger is always that these things would swallow up the energy and the focus of what the church is mainly to be about, the obedience of faith. Now, there are obviously many roles and many tasks that can be done in missions. The only point we're we're making here is that whatever it is, it must work towards this this goal, the obedience of faith through the local church. Number two, another implication that grows out of this is that Christian maturity is the end goal of our spiritual gifts and ministry to the body. That's what you have been graced unto. It's not just a calling for missionaries. It's for every believer. I won't have you turn there, but you know the Great Commission. What did Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, obey all that I have commanded you. In other words, we are obeying the Great Commission not only as we're sending out missionaries, And not only as we're sharing the gospel with our neighbors, and both of those are important, and both of those are ways we're filling the Great Commission, but you are obeying the Great Commission as you seek to disciple one another. To use Clay's terminology, you help one another obey Christ. We pursue Christ-likeness together in a local church. That's what we are to be about, and that's what you've been graced into. And if that's happening in our churches... If we're faithfully fulfilling the Great Commission here, then and only then will we be able to do this abroad. One of my professors in seminary defined mission simply, it is ecclesiology with a passport. 
It's replicating healthy church life abroad. So if we really care about missions, we will really care about our local church. It's a massive contradiction for a person to say that they're passionate about missions, but not passionate about the local church. Well, that brings us now to the third ingredient here in faithful gospel ministry. It's motivated by grace. It's unto the obedience of faith. And and now we get the sphere of gospel ministry, which is the nations. Go back to chapter 1 of of Romans, verse 5. Paul says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, or all the Gentiles. Paul's apostleship was quite unique from the other apostles. Only Paul was called to be an apostle specifically to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. Paul says here in, in this verse that he was, by grace, made an apostle unto the goal that people from all nations would come to the obedience of faith. The previous point emphasized that Paul went about that goal through planting churches, but the point we're making here is that Paul aimed that that would happen in all the nations, among all the Gentiles. But why? What's so significant about that? Why is Paul eager to highlight the fact that he's going to all nations? Well, it's because this is a unique and glorious time in salvation history. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, a new era of redemptive history has begun. The doors have now been swung open to the nations through the work of Christ in a way that had never been done before. The age is dawn. Owing to the finished work of Christ that all people, Jew and Gentile, can become a part of the covenant people of God and all the special privileges of His covenant through faith and faith alone in Christ alone. Through the gospel, God is in the process of making a people, gathering a people made up of Jews and unkosher, catfish, shrimp-eating Gentiles into one body from all nations, so they could be part of his covenant people. That's what God is about in this age. He's making a people that have been saved and are unified around Christ and his finished work. And that's what we need to be about. The the doors are still wide open for the nations. What a gift is being held out in this unique time of salvation history. But there's more. The sphere of gospel ministry is the nations because... Through Christ, because through the gospel, Christ is asserting his universal lordship. Look back at verse 2. It says, Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is a descendant from David, the king, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, the Messiah in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ accomplished redemption as he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And when that happened, he was enthroned as the victorious messianic king. So yes, the gospel is the message about what Christ accomplished for sinners, but it's also the message 
of Christ's lordship. The gospel is the message that Jesus is Lord. And the call of the gospel is universal allegiance to him, universal submission to him. And as men and women from all over the world respond to the gospel and live lives of obedience from faith, the nations are being brought under the reign and rule of Christ. That's what, why Paul's goal is the obedience of faith. Listen to P.T. O'Brien. He says, The purpose of the gospel is the risen Christ's rule over the new people of God. As the apostle proclaims his authoritative message, Jesus, the king of Israel, takes the nations in captive obedience to himself. The gospel thus preached is the means by which the risen Christ, in the fullness of time, asserts his rule over the new people of God. That's what's going on in the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is the way Christ asserts his lordship and brings the nations under his rule. And one day, that will be fulfilled completely when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord. That day, many will do so to their everlasting shame and condemnation. But there's another way. Christ rules as Lord now. And his global rule has already begun. And it's experienced to some extent, by those who bow to him in response to the gospel. That's why the nations matter. That's why Paul is so eager to come to the Romans. That's why he's pressing on to to Spain. Because the good news of the gospel is freely offered to the nations. The doors have been swung wide open. And in this way, Christ extends his lordship and kingdom rule over the earth. And that leads us right into our fourth essential ingredient. The ultimate goal of gospel ministry is the glory of Christ. The aim of Paul's apostleship was the obedience of faith from all nations, it's true, but even that was not an end in itself. The ultimate goal of even that is the glory of Christ. Look at the verse, verse 5. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name. The ultimate goal, Paul's mission, was the sake of his name. Now, now who is the his there? Well, the context makes it crystal clear. It is Christ. Before verse 5 and after verse 5, that's the only possible antecedent it could be. It is Christ. Paul's gospel ministry aimed at the glory of Christ. Now, do you see how all of this comes together? All these pieces are related. Paul is so devoted to all the nations, all these Gentile nations, not only hearing the gospel, but responding to the gospel with true faith that leads to a transformed life of obedience to the risen King, Jesus Christ, and it's all for the glory of Christ. You see, Christ receives glory as the nations are redeemed from sin and are transformed owing to his work and to his work alone. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says it like this. There's a profound theological reason why salvation 
did not spread to the nations before the incarnation of the Son of God. The reason is that it would not have been clear that the nations were gathering for the glory of Christ. God means for His Son to be the center of worship as the nations receive the word of reconciliation. Christ receives glory through the salvation of the nations because through His work, it's evident that Christ did everything in Him alone that was needed to deal with their sin and to secure all of God's promises. Look at how Paul summarizes his mission Chapter 16, if you doubt that this is Paul's mission statement, he gives it again at the close of the letter. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, it was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's how Paul summarizes his mission. The glory of God through Christ as the nations are brought and the obedience of faith through Christ and his work alone. And now with Christ's arrival, this work must take place. It's Christ's due. It is his glory. It is his reward. Paul's ambition was the fame and renown of Christ and what he's accomplished among the nations. Thomas Schreiner said it like this. He said the ultimate reason for a mission to the Gentiles was not the salvation of the Gentiles, but the proclamation of the name of Christ. What was fundamental for Paul was the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. The same was accomplished through the preaching of his gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, so long as the nations remain ignorant of Christ or ignoring Christ, or believers are not being established and made obedient from their faith, Christ is not receiving the glory which is his due. It should burn a fire in our hearts. Christ is worthy of glory. He's worthy to be known what he's done. That's the ultimate motivation to be a part of this work. Or to put it a different way, to the extent that we are indifferent to the spread of the gospel around us, around the nations, we're indifferent to help those around us to obey Christ and discipleship, to that same extent there is a profound failure to desire the glory of Christ as we ought. And I must confess, I see that failure in my heart. The call is that we would know Him, we would love Him, long for His glory more, and that, that would drive us. And as Christ and all that He has accomplished is known and believed, as He continues to gather people from all nations, as these people continue to grow in lives of obedience, Christ's name, His honor, His reputation is being exalted. If you're a believer, that is your desire. And our prayer is that it would grow more and more. And that is how Paul summarizes his mission. These are the basic convictions which drove him, which shaped all that he did. And they're the convictions that should drive and shape each one of us, no matter who you are, 
missionary, pastor, faithful church member. It's unto the glory of Christ that all that he accomplished might be made known and magnified. The way that happens is as you use the grace gifts that you've been given to bring about the obedience of faith, and each one of you has been equipped in a variety of ways for that goal. And if we truly desire Christ's glory, then we will desire that that take place here first, and then to the ends of the earth. So what is missions? The answer is that true and faithful missions must have all of these ingredients. It may take a variety of forms, but if it does not have these basic ingredients, it's not biblical missions. It must be motivated by grace. It aims at the obedience of faith. It's to be carried out among all the nations. And it is unto the glory, fame, and praise of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to You for Your Word. We thank You for Christ. Thank You for saving us, bringing us into Your people. It's grace, Lord. Beyond that, You've given us grace upon grace and that You have given us Your Spirit and equipped us in such a way that we can participate in this same mission, Lord. Oh, Father, I ask that you would take your word now through your spirit and apply it to our hearts, that we would be careful to practice it and be people who are humble by grace, people who give our lives to see the church built up, people who long and desire that the nations would be brought. And then, Lord, that our desire would mainly be fueled by Christ and his glory. So, Lord, we ask that, that you would glorify Christ here and through us to the nations. We love you, praise you, and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.